All right, we uh, we've been talking about. Uh, let, let me let me start this way. So, how many of you have uh, heard Pastor Shane preach? Okay, several of you. Right, does a good job. Okay, anybody over here like Pastor Shane? Okay, just checking. Thanks, T- everybody. Say hi to TJ. <laughs> so, uh, Pastor Shane it does a good job, and but it hasn't he hasn't always been that way for him. Uh, when Pastor Shane first started preaching, I remember hearing the story when he was first preaching. He was at a church, and when he got done, people were passing through the line and, you know, telling him he, would, he, he did a great job. And one guy came through the line, and he shook Pastor Shane's hand, and he said, Listen, he goes, you are smarter than Einstein, and just left the church. Well, I mean, Shane was pretty proud of that, right? Felt a little bit puffed up about it, but the longer the week went on... He, he began to think about what, what did the guy mean when he said he was smarter than Einstein. So the next Sunday, after the service, he found the guy and asked him. He said, listen, last week when you were here, you said I was smarter than Einstein. I thought that was a great thing, but, but what, what exactly did you mean? And he said, well, he said, they say that when Einstein spoke, only about three or four people understood him. Clearly... Clearly, he said, based on last week's response, you are a lot smarter than Einstein, right? So anyway, I hope you're listening, Shane. You can pray for Shane. He's home. His whole family's been ravaged with sickness for the last several months. He and his uh, wife and three children. So he's at home, uh, completely contagious. So we, we can pray for him that, that God will, will bring him healing. And that's sort of what we're talking about, what we've tried to talk about. It's been broke up a little bit. But just talking about this idea of how do you and I, as believers in Jesus, how do we handle life's curveballs, right? Because listen, let's be honest, it's not that complicated to deal with success. It's not that complicated to deal with life when everything's going well, right? I mean, if the job's going well and there's money in the account and your relationships are good, your health is good, it's not that complicated to to do well. You really see what people have built their life on and what they're like when things don't go well, right? I mean, we live in a country where road rage, road rage is a thing, right? I mean, we live in a country that where people who get so frustrated with traffic and the way other people drive that they have pulled guns on other drivers because they can't handle traffic or all of those things well. That's the kind of world we live in. Where if you, listen, I I ran restaurants for 10 years as a restaurant general manager. One of the restaurants I ran was a, was a pizza place. And I will never forget running, running the restaurant, working a Friday night, very busy, people coming and going, and I'm up front and I'm taking care of all the orders that come out of the oven which means pieces are come out, I cut them, I'm throwing them in the boxes, I'm placing them where they go with the ticket. So when people come in to pick up their carry-out orders or if the servers need their orders, they're all prepped right there. And I'm, I'm just head down, focusing on cutting up the pizzas and boxing them. And I don't know what time it is, but I feel this box of pizza just slam up against me well, I've got my head down cutting up a pizza to put in a box. And I look up and there's this frustrated customer who apparently had gotten his, had gotten the wrong pizza. It wasn't what he ordered. And his response was to walk into the restaurant with his pizza and throw it at me in the box. Right? That, that is in a nutshell what we've tried to talk about over the last few weeks is how do you handle life when it just doesn't go the way you think it should go, right? My, my best friend in the world is getting ready to start a new ministry. His first ministry ever. At 52, God has called him to be a pastor, a lead pastor of a church in Illinois. First time ever. It's been a long, long journey. 20 years, as a matter of fact, from Bible college to that moment. His wife, meanwhile, in the process, was diagnosed with breast cancer. She had to have a lumpectomy, and based upon her age, because she's younger than him, they want to do radiation. So she's in the middle of a five-day-a-week, four-day process of taking radiation. Meanwhile, he's in Illinois 
starting his ministry and looking for them a place to live. And she has a 14-year-old and a 10-year-old at home by herself. Yesterday, she gets a call from her gynecologist that from a routine pap smear that she had taken, they found two more grape-sized tumors in her cervical canal. And now they have to do biopsy because cervical cancer often is accompanied or often accompanies breast cancer. That was their day yesterday. The question isn't, did they have a bad day? Because the reality is they had a bad day, right? Even though they don't know whether it's cancer or not, it was a bad day, right? It was a hard day. It was a scary day. And the reality is that curveball in life, right? Michelle's response to her husband, Jason, was, are we ever going to catch a break, right? And that's how it feels at times, right? That's how it feels at times. It feels like we all we get are curveballs. But we're also smart enough to know there's been seasons in our life where everything went just right, right? And the question is, how do you and I, as believers in Jesus, and I, I hope I say this every time I preach, if you're not a believer in Jesus, not a follower of Christ, not a person that goes to church, welcome. So glad you're here. Man, I hope you feel... I hope you feel comfortable being able to sit in here and listen and not feel um, bothered or uncomfortable. We want you to, to, to just listen, right? And if you have questions you want to discuss, man, feel free to get a hold of any of us. If you're watching online, same thing. We, we are so grateful that you're, that you're just willing to listen. But if you're a follower of Jesus here or online, how do you and I learn to live in a way that the people who are around us see Jesus in and through us? Right? Because let's be honest, it's not that big a deal to come to church. Right? I mean, it's just not. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than putting on a football jersey makes you a football player. Right? It's just a place we go. What makes us, what makes us truly Christian is the expression of the Holy Spirit that lives in us coming out of us. That's the identifying mark of being a believer. And when do you see that most in people? Well, you see it most, hopefully according to scripture, when times get tough, right? When things are coming at us like a curveball. And so we've talked about, listen, we've talked about a couple of these ideas. Like, listen, if you've ever played baseball, baseball fan, watch baseball, listen, a curveball is built on the idea of deceit. We talked about it. The power of a curveball is, is that it's a liar, right? You're standing in the box, the pitch comes, and it looks like it's going to hit you, and you dive out of the way, and at the very end, it curves right back in across the strike zone, right? Or it comes at you, and it looks like it's going to be right down the middle of the plate, and you're going to kill it, and the last second, it dives off of the plate, and you swing and miss, right? The whole idea of curveballs is to deceive us. Listen. Every time a curveball comes your way and my way, its power is to lie to you and I, right? Its power is to lie to you and I. And if the curveballs of life can lie to us, we're in trouble. Which means, how are you ever going to know somebody's lying to you? You have to know the what? You have to know the what? Come on, everybody say it. You got to say, everybody say truth, right? You got to know truth. You can't rely on your gut. Because I can tell you right now, you're not as smart as Satan is. He has schemes and plans that you and I would have no knowledge of. And since he has no truth in him, and he is the greatest liar the world has ever seen, you're not capable, I can just tell in my gut. No, you can't. It won't work that way with the devil. You're going to have to know truth to know the lie about the troubles that you're in. Last time we were together, we talked about waiting. Because listen, if you're ever going to be able to hit a curveball in the batter's box... You got to wait. You got to wait. You got to keep your bat back. You got to keep your weight back. You got to wait. And here's the thing we're just not built to be people who wait very long for anything. I mean, it, it was so stupid, but I put stuff in the microwave for 36 seconds and I am frustrated when it's at 20, right? You know? It, you, you, you type something into Google on your phone, and if it takes more than a nanosecond to load, you're like shaking your phone like, I got to get a new one, right? We're just, we're not, we're not very good at waiting. And yet, honestly, one of the greatest 
vehicles that God uses to grow us is to ask us to wait, to be still, right? But man, we're American, right? We're built, a country built on on pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps and working the problem out, right? Listen, faith at times has nothing to do with how hard you work. Whether you're an early riser and an early go-to-better, sometimes it's about standing still and waiting for God to release you. And that might be a minute. It might be a week. Your season may last a month. But often, what we need to succeed is to be able to wait. So what I want to do tonight as we sort of wrap this up is I sort of want to put this thing in a total contextual picture. Because here's the deal. Eight billion, nearly eight billion people in the world. And we are quickly losing the fight to make it hard for people to go to hell from this generation. As a matter of fact, everything that you can read about the millennials and the, and the Gen Zs is this. They have no interest in church. None. But almost every survey will tell you they have tons of interest in spirituality. That's a problem, right? It's a problem. And we've talked here multiple times of how we got here. But the reality is those two generations are making us more aware of our shortcomings and do that. And here's the problem. These children are being raised by children. These children are being raised by, by their parents who were raised by Christians who didn't who didn't in some way instill in these children, when the, their parents when they were children, of how, to, how Jesus should look in your life when you go through these troubles. Listen, I went to that church, right? It was do as I say and not as I do. And eventually those children got to raise children. And we didn't take them to Sunday school because we just didn't feel like we had, needed to. And all of a sudden it's become a non essential part of a lot of millennial and gen, the Gen Z's life, they have no interest in it. And this, this device here allows them to be preached to 24-7 by somebody else other than somebody who teaches the Bible. You know? Who knows who it is? But they get to be accessed 24-7 by the devil. Listen, if we're going to ever, if we're ever going to see that generation grow in their faith and trust in a God who sent his son to die for them. We, listen, we have got to do a better job of letting God be seen through us when life doesn't go our way. Because let's be honest, life rarely goes our way, right? I mean, there, it seems like every time I'm running late for a meeting, I catch every red light between here and my house, right? And on the rare occasion that I catch a green light, I am just like profusely grateful to God that he allowed that to happen. But we can get into a place where we always think life is going to work against us. We're never going to have enough money. I'm never going to get over this sickness. My relationships are never going to be better. I'm never going to get another job. We, we go through all the... And here's the thing. Those children and grandchildren in our lives, they're watching. They're watching. They're not... Listen, you've got kids. I've got kids. They don't sit around just 24-7 watching us. They just pick up on stuff. Just through mere association of distance... They see how we respond. And if we're cussing and we're yelling and we're mad and we're upset, you know, and we're, we're not trusting God, and, all, and then we go, hey, it's Sunday, let's go to church. That's, that's, that's not the greatest message. And here's what Jesus said. Let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Right? If the light of the power of the gospel can't be seen in your home, and in your work and just in your life, when we go through trouble and have these curveballs, how are we ever going to expect those two generations to have an honest chance to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior? Listen, we're not a health and wealth church. We're not here to tell you that if you come to Jesus, everything's going to be better. We don't buy that, right? Because we believe in a spiritual enemy. And we believe the minute that you decide to become a Christian, life goes from a playground to a battleground. That's what happens. And so you're going to deal with that force of evil in your life. And then we live in a world that's just decaying. It's falling apart. Right? And people are enemies of the gospel. And so there's all kinds of stuff that happens in our life on a day-to-day basis. So we're going to read a passage of scripture. Romans chapter 8. It's a lot of verses. 
Uh, I'm going to ask you to stand out of respect for the Word of God as we read these verses together. And we're just going to take a few minutes to sort of, sort of wrap up a process so that you can implement this in your life. Romans chapter 8, 18 through the end of the chapter. I consider, Paul writes, that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that, be, that will be revealed in us. For the creation, that's us, all of us in the world waits in the eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this we hope, for in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all, who hopes for what they already have. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works the good. God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the goal. That's the individual goal of every believer. God wants you. If you're a believer in Jesus, hear it online. Everybody say amen. amen. Here's God's desire to transform you and I into the image of Jesus. Meaning we'll act, talk, respond like Jesus in all circumstances. He says that he, that's Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorifies. What then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen. It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, famine, nakedness, danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, he says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life, neither death nor life, angels or demons, present or future, or any powers, neither height or depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. You guys can grab a seat. All right. So let's take a few minutes here to sort of talk through a process. Because I want to give you a process to help as we deal with life trouble. Right? Because the very first, Paul, the very first verse that Paul writes, that we read in verse 18, is this. Paul said, I consider that our present sufferings aren't worthy to be compared to the glory we're going to receive in the end. So there's your premise statement, right? It's the foundational statement of that whole section, and that's this. No matter what you and I go through, it's nothing compared to the good we're going to eventually get when God glorifies us in His Son, Jesus. Can I get an amen? Now listen, if that doesn't matter to you, if you're not a person that cares about waiting to get the end result, right? Remember the video we watched about the, about the marshmallow test, right? Here's a marshmallow. If you wait till I come back, you'll get two, right? And you watch those children struggle. Listen, if you're a person that's going to struggle with waiting for the good that's coming and only going to focus on the bad that you have, this concept's going to be hard for you, all right? So I gave you some notes online. There were some notes. 
Here's a three-step process that I think from this passage will help you and I as we deal with these troubles in our life. The first thing is this. You have to identify. You have to identify. Who here online, show of hands, who within this last 12 month, last 12 months of your life have been to a doctor, been to any kind of doctor for a test? Right? How many of you have had to go back for more tests after the initial test? Right? And how many of you have been annoyed by that process? Right? The reality is this. Without the testing, without identifying through the testing what the problem is, we can't put a plan together to fix you. You get that, right? The tests are designed to identify problem areas so that solutions can be come up with. Listen. It is amazing to me how many Christian people aren't willing to identify honestly the things that happen. Go back to Romans chapter 8 and start at verse 18. And I want to read those first four verses, right? Listen to the words that Paul says about identification. He says this, okay? How many people within the last six months have dealt with a curveball in their life? How many within the last year, right? We, we've all had, how many of you have dealt with a curveball just in general in your life? Some of you have led a perfect life with no curveballs, right? It's Wednesday night. It's called audience participation, right? He says this, I consider, here's the first, here, listen, here's the first thing, because remember, a curveball's power is in its deceit, right? So what do you think Satan will do with the curveballs of your life? The first thing he's going to do to any of us when we face trouble is he's going to lie to us. Can I get an amen? He's going to lie to us. And you and I can't know it, know it's a lie unless we know the what? Come on, say it one more time. we got to know the truth. So here's some truth for us so we can identify the lies. I consider... Consider, it's a word in the Greek that means I have to reckon it in my mind. So how many times do you have to reckon things in your mind to believe them? How many? More than one? Often? Repeated? Yes. Right? My mom used to say all the time when, I was, when, she, was, when she was here, she would, How you doing, mom? And, you know, she'd say, God's really teaching me a lesson. Well, what's he teaching? And then she'd tell me, and I'd be like... God taught you that lesson 10 years ago, right? Why are you acting like you just learned it today? Because we have to often repeat things for our mind to believe them. Amen? He says this, I consider, this is a work of your mind, right? I consider that my, our, collectively, my individual sufferings aren't worth comparing to the glory that will, that will be revealed in us. So listen, here's the first lie that Satan will tell every one of us when we have troubles in our lives. This is a huge deal, right? This is the biggest thing in the world. It is a mountain to overcome, right? And many of us will react to the troubles in our life as if they are insurmountable, that we can't deal with them. And what did Paul say? It's not even worthy. It's not even worthy of any effort in your mind to consider it to be bigger, badder, harder than what you're going to get when Jesus Christ is revealed in you. Right? So listen, the first thing that you got to do when you identify is you got to find the deceit. You got to find the deceit in the story because the devil's going to lie to you. So I consider it. And he says this, verse 19, creation, that's you and me. We wait in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, meaning we're waiting for God to finally finish this thing out here, right? Wipe out the devil, throw him into prison, and let us reclaim this renewed Eden, this renewed creation of earth. We're waiting for that. He says, for creation, your life and mine, and this world is subjected to frustration. Anybody ever feel frustrated by the troubles of their life? Right? We've been subjected to that, not by our own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. How about that? Right? You ready to explain, a, you ready to, explain to your non-Christian friends a God who subjects you to frustration? 
That's not going to make any sense to them. Which is why you and I have to stop trying to explain an eternal God with very temporal brains to people who don't know Jesus. Instead, how about if we just tell them about the hope that we have through Jesus? That's a sidebar. That's free, right? But here's what he said. We live in frustration in a world that we didn't choose to be subjected to, but we are subjected to it by the one who wills it. It's God's choice. He's perfectly fine. He's perfectly fine with you and I being frustrated at times with the problems of the world. How do you feel about that, church? You feel okay about that? Well, here's the thing. If you're willing to believe the lie that being a follower of Jesus means you should never have any trouble, right? I've given my life to Christ. Why should I have to deal with losing my job or having a terrible diagnosis or watching my children struggle? You're going to have a hard time. But again, identifying the trouble with a curveball in life is just like identifying the trouble with a curveball in a batter's box. You got to understand the deceit that's being propagated in the trouble. He goes on to say this, creation itself, bring, bring 20 back up. He says, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Listen to this, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Get this. God's design for your frustration and mine in the world that we live in is so that we would eventually groan and long to be liberated through our relationship with Jesus Christ. That's God's desire for us. So guess what's going to happen? James says this, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter trials of many kinds. Right? Consider it all joy. That doesn't mean you got to be happy and bubbly and post on Facebook. Guess what happened to me today? I got fired, right? We're not talking about being, we're not talking about being ridiculous, but joy, right? A response of the Holy Spirit, love, peace, patience, kindness, right? Love, is joy in there? Yeah, right? It's not something you can produce on a human spirit, but the Holy Spirit in you can produce joy in the midst of a trial. But here's the thing. When you go through a trial, listen, the first thing you need to do is you need to identify the deceit that comes with the trial. Because I can tell you, at least from my life, the very first thing that happens to me spiritually when life doesn't go my way is the devil starts talking to me. Right? Well, and we say, here's what you say. I don't know if this is, I don't know if God's testing me or I don't know if the devil's after me. Right? I just don't know. The answer is yes. Both. Right? Trials are, listen, trials are designed by nature to teach us to trust God more. Can I get an amen? And trials are by design curveballs to an expected life, which means the devil and the demons and the powers and the principality of all these evil things in the heavenly places, they're there to implement their schemes against us. And it always begins with a lie. Always. Take a minute. Take a minute. The next time life comes at you. And listen, you need to have space to be human. It's just like my, my, my friend's wife said. Are we ever going to catch a break? Right? She, she's allowed her space to be human. But once you get there, you've got to identify the lack of truth that you're hearing in your head. Because here's what we know from Scripture. Here's another truth. Right? 1 Corinthians 14.33 14, says this. God is not the author of confusion. Everybody say confusion, right? All of that doubt, all of that lack of understanding. God is not the author of that confusion, but he is the creator and author of peace, 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 right? Where do you think all of the confusion in your life when trials comes, comes from? It comes from the lies that the enemy produces when you're going through trouble. Here's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12 and 13. Dear friends, do not be surprised 
at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So again, here's what happens. Here's the way the the trouble works. Life throws you a curveball. You you know what it is. You've gone through it, right? It's your curveball. And here's what happens. We act surprised. How can this happen to me? How can this keep happening to me? Why is this happening to me? And if we're believers, a lot of times it comes with, why is this happening to me? I'm doing this and this and this, and I've given this and I've served this. What Peter say? Don't be surprised. Right? That's truth. And listen, if you're going to deal with life's curveball, you can't be free from the bondage of it unless you know the truth. So he says in verse 13, instead of being surprised, do what? Rejoice. Everybody say rejoice. Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Jesus so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Listen, there's, let's not, let's not be, you know, it's no fun to preach these sermons. And here's why. Because with every word out of my mouth, I'm fearful that God's going to greet me when service is over with a trial. Just to see if I really believe what I'm saying. That's why these things are hard to teach. Because when I tell you, listen, the first thing you do when trial comes is you got to identify. And here's what you identify. You have to, you have to identify the lie that's going to come with your trouble. And here's one of the things that we know comes with our trouble. We are surprised. We're caught off guard. We're in despair, right? We have no joy. Our faces are downcast. Everything is over. We can't believe it's happening. What does scripture say? Consider it joy. Don't be surprised. Instead, rejoice, right? I'm fearful at times that God's going to want to put me to the test 16 minutes after the sermon's over, right? Because... Because how, listen, how's God going to know that you really trust him in the trial until he puts you through one, right? That's what's going to happen to all of us. You have to identify the trial. And listen, let's not confuse trials and troubles with consequences of your own sin, okay? Listen, there are things in life that if you do them, you're going to suffer, right? Peter writes later on in his book, he says this, don't suffer for somebody who's an evildoer. Suffer as somebody who does right. Right? If you're a terrible spouse, you shouldn't be surprised if somebody in your relationship wants a divorce. You can cry wolf all you want, but if you've been a bad spouse for 10 years, why would it surprise you that the person you're married to voices their unhappiness? Right? If you're a terrible parent who never brings your child to church, why would you surprise when your child doesn't want to live in faith, right? If you spend every bit of money you have traveling and buying stuff, why would you be surprised that when the washing machine breaks, you don't have the money to replace it or fix it, right? Those kinds of sufferings are not what we're talking about, right? There are other biblical truths that will help you and I figure those things out. I'm talking about you're cruising along in life and all of a sudden you have a pain in your back. You're like, well, that's new. And you go to the doctor and you find out that that pain is cancer in your back. Right? Or you're cruising along and everything's fine and boom, all of a sudden you get a notification that there was a shooter at your child's school. And something's happened to your son or daughter. Right? We're talking about the things that life comes your way. You're driving along on the road, and all of a sudden a drunk driver crosses the, mid, the midline stripe and crashes headlong into your car. Right? We're talking about the troubles that a groaning, broken world brings our way. Here's the first thing. Identify. Identify the lie that the enemy will tell you in the midst of that suffering. And the only way... To know what those lies are, is you got to know the truth. I shared just a few verses with you about the truth of life in 
those curveballs. Identify them, because when you can identify the lie, the second thing is, is you can act. Listen, when you're standing in a batter's box and that curveball is coming, if you can identify the curveball quicker rather than later, you have a chance to make the right decision with the bat. You can decide really quickly whether I should swing because it's going to come right across the, bot, the plate or I should not swing because it's going to go right into the dirt. Because if you can't identify the curveball, you're never going to be able to act properly. Listen, if you and I can't identify the lie in the middle of our trouble, we'll never be able to take the next step, which is to act properly. Look at verse 22 of chapter 8. Go back to Romans 8 and verse 22. Here's what he said. We know the whole creation has been groaning. That Greek word means there's this low, there's this low guttural hum constant in our world. You know the sounds you make when you get older and you get up out of a chair, you're like, oh, right? That's the sound that happens 24-7 in our world. That's the Greek, what the Greek word means, right? He said our whole creation has an ongoing groan, as in the pains of childbirth right up until present time. He said, not only so, but we ourselves, listen to this, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, who are, who are endowed with God's presence, we groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Listen, there's tons and thousands of Christians that the only thing they want is for Jesus to come back. Can I get an amen? Can I get an amen? Right? Time for us to live in a better world. And just so we're clear, we're not going to live on clouds and fly with wings like angels. Okay? Heaven is going to be right back on this rock. And it's going to be perfect. And we're not going to deal with traffic. And we're not going to deal with the St. Louis Cardinals being better than the Chicago Cubs, right? All the injustices of the world will be righted, but we'll live in a perfect world. So listen, you and I should want redemption to come quicker rather than later because we're just getting to come back home to a place where we're familiar with, except it will be perfect Come on, can I get an amen, right? Listen, heaven is an appealing place if we got to go live in a cloud with wings. That doesn't appeal to me. I don't want to sing 24-7, holy, holy, holy. And here's the thing. God didn't make us to do that. God made us to have dominion over the earth that he created. And when God redeems this earth, when he reveals the sons of God, we get to go back and do that. I can't wait for that, right? So here's what he said in verse 24. Listen to this. For in this hope we were saved. What hope? The hope that we get to go to someplace better. And to find out it's right back here and this place is fixed. That's awesome. He said we were saved in that hope. Listen to this. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. He says this. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have... We wait for it patiently. Listen, I played baseball enough to know this. That no matter how good you are at identifying a curveball, there's still a part of you that's just got a hope that you're going to hit it. Because if everybody who was the best at baseball could hit every curveball, these people would bat, they would hit the ball nine times out of ten. The greatest hitters in the world only make contact three times out of ten. Which means we have to have a lot of hope. Right? Listen, when you're in the middle of a trouble and you've identified the lie, the second thing you've got to do is you've got to act. Which means you've got to base your actions on the hope that it's going to be okay. Which means you haven't seen the result of that yet. Right? Listen, it doesn't do me any good to hope, right, that supper's going to be ready when I get home after service tonight. And the reason it's no good for me to hope is because I've already told... It's done. So if I hope for supper to be ready tonight based on the information I've been given, is that really hope? No, because I already know it's going to be there. Hope, hope is when you put your belief in something that you have not seen. Right? I'm, I'm, I listen to audiobooks all the time, and one of the things I heard in an audiobook was hope is not a strategy. Right? Hope isn't a strategy. Let me tell you, biblically, hope is a strategy. 
Because if you live in the world that we live in and you deal with the troubles or deal with the troubles and the curveballs in our lives facing them and you do it without hope, you have no strategy. It's why, it's why Joe says at the end of, in most funerals, people will do one of two things. They'll be driven to their trust in God through Jesus or they'll be driven to a bar to drink their troubles away. Because without hope, listen, without hope, there's no strategy, Right? Everybody get that, right? Listen, when you're in a trial and you've identified the lie, the second thing you do is you've got to base your actions on this. Hope. Hope. Here's what Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 6 says this about hope. He says this, I think it's in verse 10. Hebrews chapter 6. I know it's there because I've seen it. There you go. People swear by someone greater than themselves. And that oath, right? Remember when you were a child? I swear on my mama's grave, right? I swear on, right? We, we confirm oaths by someone greater than themselves. And the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to the argument. I swear on my kids' lives. Boom. Over. You should trust me, right? Because if I swear by someone greater than me, ends the argument. Here's what he says. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to us. Right? Of all the things that he promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. He said this, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Here's the thing about hope. For Christians, it's got to be a strategy. Listen, if you go through a trial and you've got no hope, how do you survive it? I mean, there's no survival rate for people who walk into trials and have no hope. But here's the thing about hope. The Bible describes it as an anchor. It's the kind of thing that even when life is raging with uncertainty and trouble, if you have hope, if you have hope, you are firm and steadfast. What's the song say? Steadfast and sure while the billows roll, right? Anchored to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love, right? Listen, everybody in here and everybody watching online, and whether you're Christian or not, it's irrelevant. You're going to go through stuff in life. And here's the thing. You're going to be lied to in the midst of the trial. Identify the lie. If you don't identify the place where the enemy's going to lie to you, you're never going to have the right action plan. But once you identify the lie, then you've got to act. And here's the thing about action. You cannot act without hope. If your belief system is so shot that you have no hope in the trial, you have no anchor for your soul, you're going to be tossed all over by the trial you go through. Does that make sense to you? And that's just giving power to something that the Bible says isn't worth to be it isn't worthy to be compared to the glory that we'll receive in Jesus. Now, I'm going to finish this. I know I'm at 730, but I'm going to say this part. Go back to Romans chapter 8, verse 26. I want to get this because this, this is the coolest part of the whole thing here. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. So once you identify, you have to act. Listen, when you're in the batter's box and you identify the pitch, you've got to swing the bat. You get that? Can somebody say, I agree? Right? You've got to swing the bat. Listen, when you're in life and you've identified, identified the problem, you can't shut down. You have to act because what's at stake are these eyes from your children and grandchildren, your friends and your neighbors that are watching to see Jesus in you. And you can't act without hope. Hope might not be a strategy, but you can't build one without it. Because then you're just going to be tossed all over by the trial. But he says this, listen to this, listen to this. In the same way, listen to this, he says, in the same way, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, okay? So now he's going to describe a weakness for us in the midst of trials. We don't know what we ought to pray for. Anybody in here ever not know how to pray when they're going through trials? Right? Don't know what to say, frustrated, right? People say, well, listen, you just need to pray more. And you're like, I don't know what to say, Right? Here's what it said. Check this out. It's so cool, right? In those, in those weaknesses, listen, everybody say the word weakness. 
The Spirit helps us in our weakness. He defines the weakness. The weakness is when we're in the midst of the trial, we don't know how to pray. Right? That's a weakness. For some of you, that's a really hard thing to admit. But it's true. Listen to what what he says. But the Spirit, the Holy Spirit Himself intercedes. Everybody say the word intercede. Right? Everybody here and everybody online, let's say it one more time. Intercedes. The Spirit Himself will intercede for us through wordless groans. Check this out. Verse 27. And He who searches our hearts, that's God, knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, intercedes for us, God's people, in accordance with the will of God. So, check this out. So, you're in a trial. I'm in a trial. I've identified the lie. I've got hope that this trial isn't bigger than God. It isn't going to destroy me. Right? It's not going to have more power than the Bible tells me I should give it. And I'm going to build my action plan on hope. Right? But then I get into the midst of it. Your teenage daughter comes home and she's pregnant, out of wedlock. Your three-year-old granddaughter is diagnosed with leukemia. Your son is fired from his job three months after the diagnosis. Right? You get a call to be a pastor in the midst of that. Your wife is diagnosed with breast cancer at 44 years of age. And in the midst of going through radiation, she finds out she has two more tumors in her cervical canal that could be cervical cancer. And you don't know what to do. You don't even know how to pray. Here's what the Bible says happens. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with wordless groans. And here's the thing. When he does so, he does it. He does it in accordance with God's will for your life anyway. And here's the cool part. The Greek word for intercede is intunkano. Intunkano is made two words, in, which means in, upon, and tunkano, which means this, to hit the bullseye, to hit the mark. So listen to this. You identify the lie in the trial. You're not avoiding the trials. This world is groaning. It is broken. It is waiting for redemption. There is no way to live your life here without a curveball. You've got to identify the lies in that that curve. Then you've got to act. Inactivity, inaction in a trial will simply bury you. And here's the thing. Your action plan has to be built on hope. Hope is the anchor that keeps the trial from drowning you. And sometimes it is the only thing that makes it possible for you to get from Monday at noon to Tuesday at 6 a.m. Right? It's the only thing. Because nothing has changed and the winds got worse and the trials gotten harder. And the only thing that can keep you there is the promise of hope. And here's the thing. In the midst of all of that, the greatest action that takes place is that the Holy Spirit speaks to God on our behalf in accordance with God's will and every prayer the Holy Spirit gives on your behalf is a result of our weakness and when he says it, it is the perfect prayer. It hits the mark every time. And listen, one of the biggest lies that happens in the midst of our trials is that we are led to believe that nobody gets it. I'm all alone. The Bible says this, in the midst of your weakest moment in your trial, when you don't even know how to cry out to God, the Holy Spirit is speaking to God in wordless groans and it is pinpoint accurate, asking for God to give you and I what we need. I love that. I love that picture. And the Bible says this about Jesus. Hebrews chapter 7. I think there's a, there's a verse there in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 and 25. It's the last three verses of the thing. Listen to this. I'll close with this. 
There have been many of these priests, many of those priests, he says, since death prevented them from continuing office. High priest who would serve on behalf of the people, they would eventually die, so there had to be more. Listen to this. But because Jesus lives how long? Come on, say it again. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. So that Jesus is interceding for us permanently. And here's what the Bible says. Therefore, he is able to rescue. That, that Greek word is the word for rescue. He says this, therefore, he is able to rescue completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to what? Intercede for us. So not only is the Holy Spirit present in your trial, and maybe you can't pray, and maybe you can't talk, and maybe you don't know what to say, but the Holy Spirit does. And God who knows our heart, God who knows our hearts in the midst of that trial, has the Holy Spirit hit the mark for you, hit the bullseye for you every time he speaks to God on your behalf in that trial. And not only that, Jesus, our permanent high priest who intercedes before God on our behalf is also, same Greek word, in tunkano. He is hitting the mark on our behalf. You're never alone in a trial. You're never alone in a trial. Say it with me. I'm never alone in a trial. One more time. I'm never alone in a trial. And not only are you not alone, the people that are in there fighting for you are always asking for and saying the right thing so that you and I can be completely rescued in that process. Amen? Listen, I, the last thing there is, you've got you've to remind yourself, right? What did Paul say? What are we supposed to say to all this? Can anything separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? The answer? No. And not only that, he says we're more than conquerors. More than conquerors through him that loved us. There's absolutely no ability to escape a trial in this world. Can I get an amen? None. But there is always a choice how we live in it and through it. And you and I can't live in it and through it well until we find the lie of the enemy in it. And two, begin to act. Which means you're going to have to build a strategy with an anchor of hope. And then you're going to have to understand that even when you're weak in your plan, the Holy Spirit and Jesus, they're hitting the mark on your behalf. And they're doing it before God so that you and I can be rescued and saved completely. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, uh, man, thank you for that word picture. The Jesus and the Holy Spirit aren't just speaking on our behalf. They're saying the exact right thing. They're, they're doing the exact opposite of what we do, which is we miss the mark. The Holy Spirit and Jesus never miss the mark on our behalf. So we're not only are we never alone, never alone, we're never in danger of not being rescued completely. And so I pray, Father, for this room and for those online who are going through it, who are preparing to go through with the curveball of life. Man, I pray, God, your spirit's conviction upon them to read the Bible, to buy a book of the promises that you make us so that we can learn how to identify the deceit in the trial by knowing the truth. And then by creating a plan of action to live our faith out to our children and grandchildren, our neighbors, our friends, our enemies. And Father, help us to build a strategy that's based upon a hope. And hope isn't about what we see and about what we know. It's about something that's completely unseen. But yet it's the anchor to our soul that keeps us from being drowned in the trial, God. And I pray that every person in here that has felt weakness in the trial, they'll be encouraged to know that they've got the Holy Spirit and Jesus not only fighting for them, but doing it in a way that guarantees our rescue. Father, thank you for your spirit. I pray that you will convey wisdom and truth to us through this process. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, church.